Our Heavenly Father, today we just, uh, again, so grateful to be here at Michigan Camp Meeting. And we thank you for the many blessings you have showered upon us already, and especially that you have kept the rain away and that we are enjoying some nice sunny weather. And so, Lord, we ask for the presence of your Holy Spirit with us today in our seminar this afternoon. We pray in your name. Amen. Okay, so I thought it might be interesting to begin our time together today with a little surprise quiz. Who likes a surprise quiz? (laughs) I see one eager person here. But I do have some prizes for this surprise quiz. So I will say, um, when I ask the question, raise your hand and I'll recognize you and we'll have a person with a microphone come to you. But um, I'm looking for as complete of an answer as you can give. Who was here yesterday? Can you raise your hand? Okay. Very good. So we also have some new people today. What we covered yesterday was really foundational for what we'll be talking about through the rest of the week. And that's why I thought it would be good to start today with a little review of that. And uh, we can talk a little bit more about it before we proceed and talk about uh, the two uh, pioneer women that we'll be focusing on today. So, I have, uh, I'll show you the prize here. So, for the person who can answer the questions, and only one prize per person, so if you've answered one, then let someone else do it, I have a gift copy of our book, Women's Ordination Doesn't Matter. So, if you can answer, the question correctly, we will be happy to give you a copy of our book. Okay, so yesterday we talked about something very foundational, as I said, uh, but the first question was, is, why, please explain why credentials were needed in the fledgling Adventist movement. Okay, we have a hand here. And please stand up and tell us your name and where you're from. And No, right here, right here. (laughs) Why were credentials needed? And what is your name and where are you from? I'm Katie and I'm from Michigan. And according to my memory... Credentials were needed because there were a lot of people coming up with new light for people in the Adventist. Actually, I don't think the Adventist church was established yet. Um, That the Advent movement, there were many people who said, I have new light, and they wanted to come and they wanted to share the new light with everybody. And it was hard to discern which light was true and which light was not true. And so they established a system of credentials so that um, they knew that these people were 
spreading a valid message. That's my guess that's, <laughs> from mem that's, memory. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. You get a book. That's right. In the late 1840s, early 1850s, as the Advent movement was growing, it was wonderful because more and more people were learning the message, but along with that came the problem of some people claiming to have new light that was not according to Bible truth. And they would go to various places where Advent believers were meeting, claiming to have this new light. And so the church needed to have a way to distinguish, was this person uh, really preaching and teaching the Advent truth, or was he not? And so they recognized there needed to be a system in place to identify who would be presenting uh, true Advent biblical beliefs. So that's why. But then there's the question, how do you si decide what qualifications? How, how can you decide, uh, should someone be ordained? What about ordination? And so Ellen White had two visions, a Bible order and gospel order. And um, who can tell me, this is a tough one, who can tell me what years did she have those two visions and what was gospel order? What is it? What was revealed to her in those visions? You want to try. Okay, tell us your name and where you're from, what town? Diane Kobor from near Campus Sabo. And I don't remember exactly. I'm guessing 58 and 60. I don't know if those are the right dates or not. What was the date you said? 58 and 60. 60 and 62. <laughs> <laughs> tell you what. Tell you what. I'll give you the years, but you need to tell me what, what she learned in those visions. What okay, she the years were, the first one was in 1850, so that's <gasps> pretty early. 1850 wow. and 1852. Wow. 1850 and 1852. It was a decade off. So, what, tell us now, what, and this is key, what was in those visions. List all ten points. <laughs> <laughs> you get a prize. Well, basically, they came up with a Bible foundation that was totally unlike the churches that they had come out of, and it was not Roman Catholic. So they decided that men should be chosen who could rule their households well. That's founded in Scripture. That they should be ordained to give the ordinances, which is baptism and communion. And that they should be men of experience, they should be meek and humble, yet able to teach and able to come against their opponents with a, with a meek yet strong spirit and strong in the Lord. Trying to think of the rest of the ten. And not only that, so that was for the ordained minister, but they also had what was called a credential 
for being able to preach. So women were allowed, as in 1869, Sarah Lindsay, a minister's wife, was chosen to receive the preaching credential. And this shows that they appreciated the gifts of women, but there was a differentiation of the roles of men and of women. Okay, very good, Diane. And it's important to note, if you remember from the presentation yesterday, we outlined what was in the vision, and with each point of the vision, there is a biblical reference. So it's not, well, Ellen White just had this vision, and that's what we decided to do. But it's very clear that it paralleled what she saw in the vision is absolutely parallel with what we find particularly in Timothy and Titus. And um, so that's how it started. And it was not, they did not just adopt ordination from the uh, churches from which they came or from the Roman Catholic Church, but it was biblically based and it was through also the gift of prophecy. And we also had other writers, you might recall, who there was a series uh, in the uh, Advent Review. There was a series that a number of our pioneers wrote about this, establishing this. So I want to encourage you, by the way, to go back to original sources. Don't just believe because I'm saying it or my husband, Clinton Wallin, is saying it, but now with the advent of the internet and everything online, you yourself have the privilege to go back to original sources. And if you go back on uh, the internet, the uh, General Conference has the Office of Archives, Statistics, and Research. If you go to archives.adventist.org, you can find uh, original source material. I just am curious, since yesterday's seminar, is there anyone here who read the chapter in early writings called Gospel Order since yesterday's seminar, since we mentioned it? Anybody? No. Well, how many of you have read that chapter before? Okay. A couple, two or three. May I suggest that before tomorrow's seminar, that would be very good reading. Okay, so now we're going to go to the next two women who received licenses to preach. Licenses to preach, and they were from the great state of Michigan, where we are right now. There was Ellen S. Lane and Roby Tuttle. Let me show you. I wish we had pictures of all of the ladies we're going to be talking about, but it was kind of hard. Um, I don't know if uh, some, they just didn't have a way to have a picture taken, but of some people we do have pictures. And this is Ellen and Albert Lane from Michigan. And Albert Lane was a pastor, as we mentioned before, many of the early women who received licenses to preach, they were wives of pastors. And uh, it worked very well, again, with what Ellen White encouraged ladies to do. Uh, 
who are married to pastors that a pastoral team can be very, very effective. And that was certainly the case with Ellen and Albert Lane. Let me tell you a little of something of what happened with them, how Ellen first started preaching. Her husband was supposed to be preaching in Tennessee in uh, some uh, meetings, but he came down with a very bad case of malaria. And I don't know if any of you have ever had malaria, but it is not something very nice to have. And he was really sick with a high fever, with chills, and he was supposed to be preaching that night. Well, what could be done? They prayed about it, and he didn't seem to be getting any better. They prayed about it some more, and it was clear that he was not going to be able to preach that night. And Ellen was impressed that she should give the message so that at least the people would receive the message. So that's what she did, and that's how she got started preaching. And I know there's been some argument, is it okay for women to preach? But actually, biblically, it is, and we will talk a little bit more about that. But she became a very, very effective preacher. It was clear, and so the denomination decided to recognize her gift in preaching and in evangelism with a ministerial license. And so she was one of the first women uh, to receive the ministerial license to preach. Now, this is different, as we talked about yesterday. Remember, there are two credentials. There's the ordained minister credential, and then there's the ministerial license, which is basically a license to preach. And the ordained credential allowed the minister to conduct the ordinances, mainly the ordinances of baptism and of serving the Lord's Supper. And, of course, they could also preach, the ministerial license allowed the person to preach, to do evangelism, and to teach. Basically, to do other functions like that, except for the ordinances that would require an ordained minister to do that. So Ellen Lane, she was uh, one of the early holders. And um, let me just tell you a little bit more about Albert and Ellen. They sold their Michigan farm in order that they could start preaching. And they had revivals and tent meetings in Ohio, Indiana, Virginia, Tennessee, uh, as I was just telling you that story. And Ellen was known as a very powerful preacher. And she often gathered hundreds. Hundreds of people came to hear her preach. She was biblical, she was humble, and she loved the Lord. And that came across in her preaching. And of course, her husband was also a mighty preacher, and together they did a mighty work for the Lord. Then we also have, and this is a very interesting case, the case of Roby Tuttle. Has anyone heard of Roby Tuttle? Let's see here. 
Has anyone ever heard of Roby Tuttle before? Also from Michigan. And uh, as you might know, after the Millerite, the disappointment, the Millerites, well, actually there were three groups. The largest group, they just uh, said, we must have been mistaken. We're not going to believe this anymore. We're going to go back to our former churches. And so the largest group did that. A second group, they were still Adventists, and yet they still kept worshiping on Sunday. And then the third group, uh, they learned about the Sabbath, actually from Rachel Oaks, a Seventh-day Baptist, and uh, they shortly became Advent believers who were keeping the Sabbath. Of course, at that time, we weren't known yet as Seventh-day Adventists, but we started keeping the Sabbath, the Seventh-day Sabbath, early on. Well, anyway, Roby Tuttle, she was an Adventist, but she preached for the first-day Adventist. But even before she attended Battle Creek College, she came, and this will tell you how powerful camp meetings are. Right here in Michigan, Michigan Camp Meeting, uh, she attended and she was convinced of the truth of the Seventh-day Sabbath, and uh, she changed from being a first-day Adventist then to an Adventist who kept the seventh day. And it was a loss, of course, for the first-day Adventist, but a real gain for uh, the Adventists who were keeping the seventh day because she was also a very powerful preacher and also a writer. In fact, very interesting. Uh, you can, again, you can look this up. Uh, you can read. It's wonderful. I love how on the archives website you can go back and see the actual old copies of the Review and Herald. And um, just get my granny glasses on because the... Uh, the print in these old magazines, it's quite small. <laughs> so this is from the Advent Review and Herald of the Sabbath, volume 44, number 9, and it's under Camp Meeting Notes, August 18, 1874. And this is where it talks about Sister Roby Tuttle, who has for some time labored as a public speaker among the first-day Adventists and who this past season came, uh, or she attended Battle Creek, was also unexpectedly present and publicly took her stand in favor of the Sabbath. So she publicly took her stand here at a Michigan camp meeting uh, well over a hundred years ago. And I just hope in case there are any visitors here and you're wondering about the truth of the Sabbath or of the second coming of Christ, that you will talk with someone. There are many pastors here, and I, I'm sure they will be happy to study the Bible with you. Camp meeting uh, is a wonderful place to uh, learn about the Lord and to uh, give your heart to him if you haven't done so yet. So Roby Tuttle, she preached 
many places, and she also went with Ellen White at times to pray for people. So she was well known to Ellen White, and she also was a writer. So if you look up her name, Roby Tuttle, uh, again in the archives, you will see that she wrote a number of articles for the Review and Herald. Uh, one is in March 25, 1875, called Thy Kingdom Come, and again about the coming of the Lord. It starts here. We are living in the last days, very near the time when this petition is to become, uh, is to be granted. Thy kingdom come. And we need very much of the grace of God. So you can read what she wrote, which was no doubt very similar to what she preached. Another one that you can find, there is, um, so that was March 25, 1875. And then in the same year, July 22, 1875, it's a quote, I will come again. And again, it is talking about the second coming. So this was very near and dear to Roby Tuttle, and this was the message that she continued to preach for many years, to, to preach and to write about. And I encourage you to look her up. And uh, it's interesting how through a person's writing, even though they are dead, yet they still speak to us today, and that's the power of the written word. So I encourage you to, to become acquainted with some of our early pioneers, uh, particularly the women, and see how God used them in a very mighty way for him. Now, we did have a question yesterday about commission ministers. Uh, in our presentation, again, we talked about the ordination credentials for an ordained pastor and then a license to preach. What about commission ministers? Where did that come from? Commission ministers. Well, um, I asked my husband, who uh, is an expert in research, to do some research and uh, to share that with you today. So again, we can fill out the picture of the various licenses, the various credentials that our church has or is granting and how that came into existence. Now we know with uh, the ordination credential and the ministerial license, we know that that was guided by Ellen White's Gospel Order Vision and the Bible. We know that that was built on a biblical foundation. But what about the commission minister license? Where did that, or the uh, credential, the commission minister credential, how did that come about? And uh, who is eligible to receive that? These are important questions uh, that we need to understand today. So again, uh, my husband, Dr. Clinton Walleen, he's an associate director at the Biblical Research Institute at the General Conference. He will share this portion of the presentation. Thank you, Gina. Okay, so 
This is a topic actually that is not so easy to research um, because it covers a long period of time. But in general, um, if we would begin maybe just uh, sort of with an overview, before 1980, there were really only two kinds of ways in which Seventh-day Adventist ministers were recognized. One was the ministerial credential, and this is only for ordained ministers. If you carried a ministerial credential, it means that you had been ordained at some point to the gospel ministry. And according to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, those who are ordained should be the husband of one wife. And so it was issued only to men. But a second way of recognizing ministers was the ministerial license. And this is the kind of license that was given to the ladies that Gina referred to. Ellen Lane and uh, Roby Tuttle. And before that, in 1869, Sarah Halleck Lindsay. Most of the time, um, these ladies, as, as Gina mentioned, were supporting their husbands who were already ordained ministers. Because, of course, it involved a lot of traveling. So the, the ministerial license was for pastors, evangelists, and Bible teachers. And probably it should be mentioned that pastors is a term that doesn't necessarily mean simply being assigned to a given church. Originally, the, the, the church actually avoided the term pastor and preferred the term minister simply because Number one, it's the main New Testament word for service to the Lord. Um, and secondly, and that, that has a broad application. We can all be uh, ministers in that sense. But secondly, it um, avoids the idea of a, a settled pastor assigned to one church because the ministers of the Adventist church um, from the beginning were considered evangelistically minded. And they were to travel from place to place to raise up churches. Now we tend to have specialized ministries that do that. But originally every pastor or minister was expected to do that. And this, uh, the ministerial license up until 1975 was issued to both men and women. And maybe I'll just mention why, because the question came to me, um, someone after the evening meeting last night came up and asked about why licenses were given to women to preach. And I said to the lady that, um, because we are all to share our faith, number one, Revelation 22:17. And the spirit of the bride say, come, and let him who hears say what? Come, and let him who is a thirst come, and whosoever will let him take the water of life freely. Okay, so that's, we're all to share our faith. But what about public preaching of the gospel? 
Well, if you look at um, some of our pioneer articles in the Review and Herald, you will find that they often refer to Acts chapters 1 and 2. And in Acts chapter 2, it says, beginning with verse 1, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. They were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each one of them, each of them. And they were how many? Verse 4. All, yeah, 120, that's from chapter 1. But they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, it says, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and all given the gift of, of languages, tongues, in order to convey the gospel message to all the people who came from all over the Roman Empire for the Feast of Pentecost. And um, if you look at chapter 1 then, you find out who those all were. Because in verse 15, sorry, no, verse um, 14, it says, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. So, um, not only the apostles were there, which are mentioned in the previous verse, but also uh, women, uh, specifically those followers of Jesus, and uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brothers. I like that too. Jesus' brothers were included. And it says in verse 15 that the number of them was about 120. So this was a large group, and they were all gifted with the Holy Spirit in order to proclaim the gospel message. And that's why those who, who were recognized by the church as having um, the opportunity to share publicly the message, um, who were considered qualified, gifted by the Holy Spirit for this, were also given the ministerial license. Now, where did we come up with a commissioned minister? Well, this was discussed at the GC level in the 1950s. And there was some reluctance to change the system that we had. Basically, the ministerial credential for ordained ministers only, and then the licensed minister, uh, uh, the ministerial license for those who were um, not yet ready for ordination. And in fact, some uh, were, would never be considered for ordination because, of course, as I mentioned, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 uh, would seem to exclude women from that category. In 1975, women no longer were given ministerial licenses. We mentioned that yesterday. But the GC spring meeting in that same year permitted ordaining women as local elders. In 1977, women were allowed to serve as what sort of a new category was created called associates in pastoral care. There was a resistance to call them pastors or assistant pastors. So 
this phrase, associates in pastoral care, was adopted. The commissioned minister credential was instituted into the North American Division working policy by the 1980 Annual Council. Now, it's actually a little bit complicate, more complicated than I have suggested here, but it will be, and that was, of course, issued to both men and women. Um, who can receive the commissioned minister credential? So, policy recognizes a number of categories. Associates in pastoral care, Bible instructors, treasurers, departmental directors, including associate directors and assistant directors of departments, institutional chaplains, administrators of institutions, and auditors. So actually you can see that it applies to quite a number of different people that can receive a commissioned minister credential. The first woman to receive the commissioned minister credential was Del Delker, um, along with 12 others from the Adventist Media Center. And that was issued by an action of the GC Executive Committee, April 30th, 1981. Some additional steps regarding commissioned ministers were taken uh, in the ensuing years. 1987, the GC Annual Council permits divisions to request commissioned minister category for its territory. So now it, it the possibility at least is expanded beyond the North American division. And then in 1989, the GC Annual Council authorizes commissioned ministers without regard to gender to perform functions of an ordained minister. Now, why would that happen? Why would they um, allow those who are not ordained with this credential to perform substantially the same functions? I made reference yesterday, but here is a quotation from Mervyn Maxwell, the article, A Very Surprising and Interesting History About Women's Ordination. He served on um, the Women's commission, uh, commission on the Role of Women in the 80s. And he tells a little bit about how this decision came about in 1989. He says, in 1989, sorry if the text is a little bit too small, but in 1989, in preparation for the 1990 Indianapolis General Conference session, leadership thrust upon a large study group called the Women's Commission the choice of voting yes or no on a double-barreled recommendation. This recommendation, which was to be sent on to the annual council of the general conference for the further action, offered that one, women could not now be ordained as ministers. But two, if they met certain specifications, women, they, women, could perform essentially all the functions of an ordained minister in their local churches. Now notice this last paragraph. Many members of the Women's Commission regarded the choice as unfair, for in order to vote yes on one, not allowing women to be ordained as ministers, it was unavoidable to vote yes also on two, allowing women to function essentially like ordained ministers. You see the dilemma? So if you would vote 
Go ahead. Yes, I was just going to explain this a little bit further because as we were researching and came across this, it was so astounding. We had to look at it again and again, um, especially when you consider the history of women uh, preachers uh, who were able to go forward and do the wonderful work of an evangelist and of preaching and did not need any such uh, credentialing like this beyond a ministerial license. But if you caught what he was saying, what the committee was faced to vote with was if you did not believe that a woman should be ordained as a gospel minister, you, you couldn't just vote that. It, was, it came as a package, as part A and part B. So part A was, no, I don't believe a woman should be ordained to the gospel ministry, but B... This is the next slide, actually. So uh, this recommendation that was voted by the Women's Commission went then as a recommendation to the Annual Council in 1989, which was a two-part decision. A, we do not recommend authorization for women to be ordained to the gospel ministry. This is quoting the actual action. Okay, and this would be recommended then to the GC session. Actually, originally... Both A and B were voted as recommendations to the 1990 General Conference session. B says those who have, without regard to gender, been recognized as commissioned ministers or licensed ministers may perform essentially the ministerial functions of an ordained minister of the gospel in the churches to which they are assigned, subject to division authorization of this provision if the following conditions apply. One, the individual has completed approved ministerial training. Two, the individual has been called by a conference to serve in a full-time pastoral, evangelistic, ministerial role. And three, the individual has been elected and ordained as a local church elder. So this was the two parts that the commission was asked to approve. They could not separate A and B. They had to vote yes, or no. So if you, you know, let's go back to the slide. If you would vote no, because you don't want to give essentially the same functions of an ordained minister to those who are not really ordained, um, except maybe as a local elder, then uh, you are also voting no on part A, which would be we do not recommend authorization for women to be ordained to the gospel ministry. So it's like you're voting no to that, which sounds like you're voting yes to have them ordained to the gospel ministry. You see the dilemma? And so there was no real way for someone who disagreed with one but agreed with the other to vote that way. You had to vote both yes or both no. Now, one other interesting fact. I said initially both of these recommendations were voted to go to the GC session of 1990 as recommendations of the Annual Council. But after the Annual Council voted it, a few days later, after some discussions, it was determined that really it was only intended that Part A be recommended 
to the GC session, not part B. The part B would be finalized at the annual council of 1989, and that's the way it stood. So that part B was never sent to the 1990 GC session. It was only as a report. It was never voted on by the GC session. So in 1990, at the GC session, uh, there was a vote on this recommendation, um, and 1,173 voted not to allow women to be ordained to the gospel ministry. 377 were in favor of allowing women to be ordained to the gospel ministry. And um, in light of the 1989 annual council decision that allows those who are not ordained to the gospel ministry but who follow the, fall into that category of licensed minister or commissioned minister and have those three criteria satisfied that were mentioned, then there was some need, it was felt, to adjust the church manual in order to accommodate that 1989 decision of the annual council. So there was a church manual revision that says this, in the marriage ceremony, the charge, the vows, and declaration of marriage are given only by an ordained minister, except in those areas where division committees have taken action to approve that selected, licensed, or commissioned ministers who have been ordained as local elders may perform the marriage ceremony. So, you can see that um, this is like a practical implementation of Part B in the church manual. But the GC session was never actually given the opportunity to vote on Part B. See, that was just told this has already been decided and we need to somehow make provision in the church manual. Well, um, this is, I guess you would say, classic definition of, of a, a slippery slope type of process where you, know, you, you take one decision and then it, it necessitates another decision and um, that decision then leads, make it easier to take a third decision and it becomes easier and easier to take, continue moving in this direction because you're kind of already on that path. See? This is what happened. So in, at last fall in the 2018 Annual Council, right here in Battle Creek, Michigan, not here, but in Michigan, at Battle Creek, not so far away, um, there was proposal to adjust the policy dealing with ordained ministers to try to make room for some of the, the policies that had been voted in the meantime that deal with commission minister. But the policies about the ordained minister only refer to men. Because obviously in the Seventh Adventist Church only men are... are um, able to be ordained to the gospel ministry at the present time. So the question was, should we, but there are some aspects of 
ordination some functions that can be performed by others if they meet certain criteria. So there was an attempt to adjust the language to broaden it to so it's not just only uh, men who to whom this policy would apply. Well, that was uh, there was some uh, um, some resistance to that uh, on the floor of, uh, during the discussion last fall. And so the committee met again, and as a result, it brought a new proposal, which was to add, instead of adjusting the, the section that deals with ordained minister, it added a new section to the GC working policy. So this new section is called the commission minister. And this, in a way, it's, it's, uh, it preserves our position on the ordained minister quite clearly in policy, but it also uh, explains that there is this other category of commission minister. So this is a, a brief history of how we got to where we are today. Thank you, Quentin. And uh, don't worry, at the end we will have time for questions again. I know probably the first time hearing it, it, it sounds a little bit complicated, but I hope you're finding it helpful to see the history of where we were and uh, how we got to where we are today. Now, tomorrow we will be uh, looking at the ministry of Lulu Whiteman. Has anyone heard of Lulu Whiteman? Yes, from New York Conference. And we will also be looking at the 1881 General Conference session and uh, the history of that uh, session in regards to women because there is a rumor that keeps floating around uh, every few years, and just in the last month, I have seen it resurface on social media, and uh, the rumor is this, that at the 1881 General Conference session, it was resolved, the word is used, resolved, to ordain women as gospel ministers. Has anyone else heard this? Okay, so tomorrow, we will be looking at Lulu Whiteman and the 1881 General Conference session and what really happened there. One other key I'd like to point out from our presentation today, um, and perhaps you caught this. So now commission ministers are allowed to, do, to perform the functions of an ordained minister, but there is a prerequisite to that. Uh, raise your hand if uh, you caught that prerequisite. What is the prerequisite? And um, someone who hasn't answered yet, and I do have a prize for you, a book for you, if you caught, and sorry, Diane, you already have one, but thank you for your participation. <laughs> Did anyone catch for a commissioned minister, someone who holds, is there someone back there? Okay, yes, there's a hand back there. Way in the back, yes, thank you. For a commissioned minister to perform the functions of an ordained minister, what has to take place first? Have to be first elected and ordained as a local elder. 
Sorry, I didn't type it. Could you repeat it one more time? Uh, the individual, individual needs to be elected and ordained as a local elder first. That's correct. The caveat is this. For a commissioned minister to be able to perform the ordinances of an ordained minister, they must first be ordained as a local church elder and be serving in their local church as an elder. So... Um, Let's see if someone can take a book to our and brother their there. Scope of authority, by the way, their scope of authority, the scope of authority of this uh, commission minister only applies to the churches in which they serve and are elected as local elders, according to policy. Uh, they're not able to function or perform ministerial functions of an ordained minister outside of the churches that they serve and are elected as local elders of. Now that's the policy, but as we know, sometimes in some places policy isn't followed, but it's good to be aware of what the policy actually says. So uh, we have about eight minutes left for questions, and I do want to tell you that this book is available. Do we have our ABC people here today? Okay, wonderful. We have a limited supply of these, and I want to tell you something right up front. My husband and I are making no money, zero, on this book. This was a gift of love to the church that uh, we wrote it. It's based on the research that he did for the Theology of Ordination Study Committee. We worked on it together, and I helped put some interesting stories in it and make it very readable. And uh, the reason we did it was to get this information into your hands. It is not to make money. So it's a very good price. The ABC, of course, um, they, they buy it from the publisher, and so we have to charge something. Uh, otherwise, of course, we would give it away, but we can't do that. But it is uh, very reasonably priced at $6 and something, and this will really give you a lot of good answers to the questions you or others may have. Uh, it has a lot of uh, tables and appendices, uh, very interesting things in the back, um, so I really recommend that you pick yourself up a copy, uh, take a look at it, and uh, or of course you can answer a question and maybe uh, win one that way. But otherwise, uh, they're available right back here uh, for $6 and something, I believe. So it's called Women's Ordination, Does It Matter? And uh, now, oh, we have, uh, yes, Pastor, please. It seems rather curious that um, the church has never had this issue before in any other of the churches up until that time. Um, I'm wondering if the incredible flood of women into the workforce because of World War II kind of precipitated that, because that really changed the dynamics of the workforce in America especially. Well, there was an uh, attempt for uh, women's rights uh, already in the 19th century. There was a strong uh, women's rights movement, and some uh, denominations already began ordaining women to the gospel ministry. 
I think the Salvation Army was one of the first to do so, but uh, there were others that uh, followed along in, already in the 19th century. Um, the more mainline denominations also uh, were uh, earlier to take this step, whereas uh, those who are, were more conservative uh, in terms of their attitude towards Scripture would uh, resist this longer. Um, interestingly enough, the largest denomination in the United States, anyone know what it is? The largest Christian denomination in the United States? The Southern Baptists. Southern Baptists, their number in the tens of millions of members, just in the United States alone. They took the step to begin ordaining women to the gospel ministry. But interestingly, they realized at some point that this was not really biblical, and so they reversed themselves. And to this day, they, they no longer ordain women to the gospel ministry. So it's an interesting case. And, and they are still, they, to this day, the largest Christian denomination in the United States. Okay. Does someone else have a question? Yes, we have a question up here. At the time that um, they began issuing uh, preaching credentials to women, was that, um, did other churches do, were there women preachers from other churches at that time? Or was that kind of unusual or? Yes, in the case of Roby Tuttle that we talked about, she was actually a, a preacher for this first day Advent. Um, and uh, I believe they had licensed her. She, she was acknowledged. So at that time, women were, were preaching. And we will see throughout our history, women have been very active and uh, have been encouraged all along. And uh, Ellen White said a lot about women working for the church, working for the Lord. And uh, you may have seen some of the quotes that talk about men and women are called to be pastors to the flock. How many have seen this quote? Who knows the context of that quote? Yes, the context of that quote is in a chapter about call porters. And remember, back then, pastor did not mean what it does today. It's it's caring for the flock, caring in the home, doing culportering work or other home ministries. It can also be, as we'll learn about SMI Henry, uh, she did a lot of evangelistic work, and she was actively involved in that uh, before she became an Adventist. She was very active in temperance work. And in fact, Ellen White encouraged her to continue in that even after she became a Seventh-day Adventist. So yes, it wasn't totally unusual in the 19th century. Okay, maybe a couple more questions, Diane. So hearing this story of them making them make a choice that's an impossible choice, and uh, how they made that the commission minister would have to be ordained as a local elder, and this would include women. So when was it allowed 
that women would be ordained as local elders. That was decided at the annual council. That was part of this two package. And when it was originally voted, they, they thought that the whole package would go to the GC session when it was first voted. But then afterwards, it was decided, well, let's just keep that one part back and, and make it final from the annual council. Maybe, maybe we could go back to one of the slides here that gives uh, some further details about that. Um, okay, so you see the second bullet point. In 1975, women were no longer given ministerial licenses, licenses to preach, but the GC Spring Meeting permitted ordaining women as local elders. And then in the 80s, specifically at the Annual Council of 1984, it was never really discussed. It was simply said, well, you know, this decision was made at the spring meeting. We need to, uh, it's, but it's never been done at the annual council. It should be ratified at the annual council. So that was done in 1984. Okay, we have uh, one more question right here. You know, we're supposed to be the people of the book. And so I would like to understand why are we making policies that are going contrary to the Word of God? Yeah. I didn't quite understand. Up, up here, the, okay. it's a We are to called hear. to be the people of the book. Yes. And so why are we making policies that are going contrary to the Word of God? Okay, okay. I see the question. So... Do you want to answer that question? Uh, yeah, I can. Why okay. are we making policies? Uh, why, rather than going according to the Bible. Okay. Yes, this is a very, very good question. Because, again, as we review, how did our church begin? You know, did God raise up this church just because he needed another denomination? I mean, that wouldn't make sense, right? I mean, there are already so many denominations. So why did he raise us up? We are a prophetic movement that God raised up at the exact time Bible prophecy said he would raise us up. And the Seventh-day Adventist Church, I believe with all my heart, and I believe you do too, that this is God's last day remnant movement that he raised up at this time with a specific message for the world, the three angels' messages, and that he is coming soon. And that is our purpose as a people. And some, I, I hear in some places, which astonishes me, that we have to remain relevant and I'm thinking, what could be more relevant than the message that we have? This is the message that the world really needs for Amen. this day. And so everything we do, when we started as a denomination, it, it was built out of the Bible. You know, the, the William Miller preaching, after the disappointment, they looked and they searched and they prayed and they wept. And sometimes they studied all night. And then that December, 
the Lord gave Ellen Harmon the first vision because he knew for a last day remnant movement, we would need the gift of prophecy, that prophetic gift, along with, of course, the Bible, the, the lesser light pointing to the greater light of the Bible. So, and yet policy isn't bad. We, we need, as we grew, now we are more than 21 million members. You know, God has blessed this movement, and, and God is a God of order. And so that's why God gave Ellen White the vision of gospel order, Bible order, because he is a God of order. So policy is not bad. It tells us how do we function as a people? How do we function as a world church? And it's actually a very beautiful organization. I believe our church organization was divinely inspired. And policy simply tells us how do we operate as a people? Actually, if you look at the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, on what are known as the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, you will find that it refers to them as the, it, could, they, it says they could be called the earliest church manuals. And what is the church manual after all? It is a policy book for the local church. And this is why um, Paul wrote to Timothy and to Titus about how to organize and maintain uh, unity in the local church. So, ideally, policies are biblical principles applied within a local church or a larger church setting. And there should necessarily be no necessary conflict between biblical principles and their application in policy. And uh, I think the church works very hard to make sure that takes place. A few years ago, um, maybe 10, 15 years ago, there was a study commission for the use of tithe. And the entire purpose of that was to make sure that all of our policies about how we use the tithe that we receive are biblical and are, de are, are defensible based on the information we have from Scripture and from the Spirit of Prophecy. Because we have many principles of how these funds are to be handled. And um, that then, uh, the result of that study made its way into policies. The principles that were gleaned made their way into policies. Even with regard to the ordained ministry, we have to finish, we're way out of time. Sorry for holding you long, but I'll maybe we'll finish with this one sentence. Um, even with regard to policies regarding who is qualified or what are the characteristics that are expected of an ordained minister, if you would read those in the policy book, GC Working Policy, you would find from a, that these were gleaned from a very careful study of the policy, the uh, policies for that in First Timothy and Titus, First Second Timothy and Titus, as well as from the writings of Ellen White about what an ordained minister is to be. They're not arbitrary. They weren't just invented out of thin air. But these policies came about through a careful study of the material we've been given. Now, Thank you very much. Maybe our brother's question was also. 
uh, hinting at what if a policy is not biblical, and that is a good question. Policies are not set in stone. Policies can be changed, uh, and uh, there is a process for doing that, and that is something uh, to be considered. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you for coming. I hope you found it to be a blessing, and um, I encourage you to get your copy of the book back there called Women's Ordination doesn't matter. We'll see you here tomorrow at the same time. Uh, Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we again thank you for all that you have done in raising up this movement and that you continue to be with us. You have been with us from the beginning of our history. You have seen all that has happened and is happening today. And we are so thankful, Lord, that you are the head of this church and that you will see it through. We pray in your name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.